Church, today we are in the last day of our series called The Company We Keep. We're talking about relationships that, that we choose to have in our lives. And we're going to be talking about employers and employees. And the first thing I want to say to you about this before we pray is that much like when we talked about marriage last week, we simply cannot cover everything there is to know about workplace theology in one sermon. Cannot be done. So we will, we will concentrate on some very small parts of it. The goal, though, is to send you out into the world to start having critical conversations, reflective conversations about what it means to be employers and employees out in the world today. Let's pray together and we're going to study the word. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us to thoughtfully do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. For seven seasons, Michael Scott was the branch manager of the Scranton office of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company on the television show The Office. You see there, that is the mug that he bought for himself. And, and each week, Michael would share his thoughts about leadership, about being an employer and a, and a boss, and, and he would say profound things like, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. But it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. Or when he would say, would I rather be feared or loved? Easy. Both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. That's the kind of boss that Michael Scott was. And for all of his antics and his unconventional wisdom, the one thing that Michael Scott always had going for him was this ridiculous love of paper and his love for the people that worked for him. So the last relationship that we're going to talk about in this series is that relationship between employers and employees. And that falls into this series because to a great extent, you do get somewhat of a choice about who you work for and who works for you. Now, we're going to look at this relationship through this story in Matthew about the Roman centurion and his servant. And right up front, we have to get out on the table that there are all kinds of power dynamics that are going on in this passage. We're talking about soldiers and servants and slaves. And when you hear those words, the idea that there is any parallel to the modern-day worker or employer might grate against your inner sensibilities. But I don't want you to discount this passage. Because even in 2019, people will stay, still say things like, I was slaving away at the office all day. So on some level, we understand that in every employment situation, there is going to be this notion of power that we're going to have to wrestle with. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Now, we're not even one verse into this passage, and already we're about to witness a very interesting exchange. Because Jesus has arrived on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's met by a commander of Roman soldiers. The best equivalent in the work world would be a middle management type person. 
Now these soldiers are occupying the town, just like Judea. So I want you to get a picture in your mind of what it's like when soldiers occupy anywhere. When the North occupied the South, when Germans occupied Poland, we don't have many stories of, of friendly or even polite engagement when occupation is involved. But here comes this leader of a hundred Roman soldiers, and he is beelining it to Jesus, who is a Jew. That's a humbling moment right there. When somebody from the almighty Roman Empire cannot find whatever it is that he's looking for within his own ranks, he seeks out people that he was sent to oppress to help him. And what exactly does he want? The centurion came to Jesus appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible distress. So this man who's in this position of power and authority, he humbles himself before Jesus, but not on behalf of himself, but of his servant. And that tells us a couple things. The centurion must have known the value and worth of his servant, because if he didn't, he wouldn't have cared what happened to him. When you don't care about someone, they're disposable to you. But he was the kind of manager, the kind of boss that knew the value of this servant. So good employers make it a point to know the value and the worth of their employees. We can also make the point that this servant must have done his work at such a high level that the centurion was able to recognize that value and that worth. Good employees give their best effort on a consistent basis. Each year, I force the entire Lee family to watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And if you have not seen this triumphant force of cinema, it is about Clark Griswold and his family's Christmas celebration. Well, Clark has a surprise for all of them. With his Christmas bonus, he is planning on putting in a pool. And throughout the film, you see Clark's diligence for his work and his boss's complete ignorance of the value of that work. And the film culminates at this moment when the delivery boy brings in Clark's bonus, which Clark ceremoniously opens while he is standing in front of his entire family. And there's this look on Clark's face when he discovers that instead of the bonus check, his boss has enrolled him in the Jelly of the Month Club. After 17 years with this company, where the bonus has been part of his salary each year, without warning, he is enrolled in the Jelly of the Month Club, and this sends Clark over the edge. So after his cousin kidnaps his boss and brings him to Clark's house, Clark's boss finally admits that sometimes things look good on paper, but lose their luster when you see how it affects real folks. I guess a healthy bottom line doesn't matter much if you hurt the ones that you depend on. It's people that make the difference, says Mr. Shirley, 
little people like you, as he's looking at Clark. And then he says, so Carl, whatever you got last year, add 20%. Now, what's funny about this is, is how wrong he, he got this, even there at the very end. But he did finally manage to see the value of his employees. The centurion saw the value in his servant as both an employee and as a human being, so much so that he put himself out there to go and speak to Jesus directly. And Jesus responds to him by saying, I will come and cure him. And the centurion answers, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. This whole conversation is stunning because the centurion is crossing cultural boundaries and extraordinary prejudices to interact with Jesus. He's just confessed that his status is one of importance and respect. He knows it, and Jesus knows it. But he came out to seek Jesus anyway. And when Jesus offers to come to his house, he humbles himself further and says that he's not worthy to have Jesus under his roof. That's stunning. That's stunning. For a member of the Roman guard to say that he knows he's not worthy to have Jesus at his house, and to still come out anyway in sheer faith for the hope of his employee would have been unheard of. And Jesus would have had every right in the world to say he did not want to cross those boundaries and prejudices, but he does. He does in part because the interaction is so spectacularly unusual, and mostly because Jesus came for the whole world, no exceptions. The centurion was really not under any obligation to care about his servant's personal life. And, and I think that we have to acknowledge that there are boundaries in every work relationship that, that have to be maintained. But a good employer is going to make that effort to know some modicum of information, especially about their most valued employees. When I think about this servant back at the house, paralyzed, we don't know what kind of workers' rights he had back then. It wouldn't be hard to imagine that there really weren't any. And a compassionate employer might have given him some time off or sent him to HR to deal with medical leave. But this centurion instead goes himself directly and takes big risks to help his employee be whole again. And the details that he gives Jesus are important details. It's not just that, oh, he's sick, like in a general sort of way. No, he's paralyzed and he's in distress. That's the difference between generally knowing that your employees have kids, kind of maybe, and knowing that Joe has a son who's about to graduate from college in May. That little bit more knowledge is an investment that can make an important difference in how your employees see that you are of value, that you matter, that they matter to you. What do you think it meant 
to that servant. To have his boss, his boss go out there, going against the conventions of society to find someone, not someone to just help him accept his fate, but someone who was going to change his whole reality. What the centurion did is this investment in loyalty because he cared deeply about this employee and had taken the time to really know what's going on with him and then thought about how he could do something that was going to make a difference, a real difference. When Jesus heard him, he was amazed and he said to those who follow him, truly I tell you, no one in, in, in no one in Israel have I found such a faith. That's an extraordinary statement. Think about the people that Jesus has had around him. And here he is saying this of a Roman centurion, that there is no one in Israel who has such a faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is amazed. He's amazed that the people who knew him best who shared his heritage, his culture, his roots and language, with whom he had shared so much in common, were skeptical, cynical, dismissive. And yet this centurion, who grew up in a different country with whom he had so very little in common, saw in Jesus power, authority, and compassion, to which he appealed not on behalf of himself, but on behalf of his servant. So here's an interesting question. Should you only have a Christian boss? Or conversely, should you only hire Christian employees? The centurion, by the way, would not have been a Christian because there were no Christians then. But he was a believer in the power of Jesus. His servant was likely not a Christian either, nor a believer, although probably he was after the fact. And so since we cannot control, and to be honest, even truly know the faith of others, it would be hard to employ such a criteria, not to mention the potential violation of employment law. But that doesn't mean that faith should be entirely divorced from the workplace. Hobby Lobby is a company that's owned by Christians. They hire non-believers. And there are Christians who work for notably non-Christian companies. And here's your fun bonus fact for this morning. Two of the actors who are in The Office, the show that we talked about at the beginning, they are actually Presbyterians in real life. But if you are an employee or an employer who is a follower of Christ, it is, it, is, it is never going to be necessary for you to walk around with a shirt that says, I love Jesus. Because it should be evident in the way that you perform your job, in the way that you work with others, in the way that you treat those who work for you and how you serve them, it should be abundantly clear without you having to make a public announcement about your faith. Now, in a few hours, the Super Bowl is going to be played at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. It is going to generate a ton, a ton of revenue for businesses all over the metro area. Did you know that seven miles outside of Center City, Atlanta, is Hapeville, Georgia? 
In Hapeville, Georgia, you will find the home of the original Dwarf House, the very first restaurant owned by Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. So Chick-fil-A is Georgia. Chick-fil-A is Atlanta. If you've ever gone through Atlanta Hartsfield Airport, you will know that Chick-fil-A is a big deal for this city. But this afternoon, on the top revenue grossing day of the entire year for the whole city, the Chick-fil-A that is inside of Mercedes-Benz Stadium, just like almost everyone all around the country, will be closed. And if anyone should ever ask why, because they don't already know, they will discover that to Chick-fil-A, this is the Lord's Day, regardless of what Tom Brady says. No shirt, no megaphone necessary, just living out the principles that guide their faith. And when it comes to the principles that guide our faith, whether you are an employer or an employee, Whatever you do, you work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Colossians 3:23. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed in that hour. Let us pray together. Lord God, give our work meaning. Help our work to be done in such a way that it shows value and worth. When we are in positions to employ others, help us to do so in a way that gives them dignity and value that helps them to better themselves and brings out their greatest strengths. Remind us that we are created in your image, and so are those that we work for and with. So help us then to choose wisely the employers that we have, the employees that we hire. It may be one of the greatest ways that we can make a difference in the kingdom here on earth. In your name we pray. Amen.